Good morning. We are in John chapter 2. We're making our way through the book of John. We're in chapter 2, verses 12 through 25 this morning. John chapter 2, 12 through 25. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16 or 17 right now. It says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeon and all the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. <clears throat> and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's pray. Father, I just come before you with your people, and we ask that our hearts would be open to what your spirit would say to the church. Lord, um, again, quite often we, we come to church, we come to your word to see, uh, to try to get something out of you, and, and of course that is legitimate, Father. We, we have, all of our needs are found, are met in you, and so we do come to you very needy people. But I'm asking that those needs wouldn't block what we need to hear. And so, Father, I pray that as we learn about your Son, as we learn about the heart of man, about the kingdom of God, that you would expose us, Lord, to your glory. You would expose our hearts to our own need for you. <clears throat> and I pray that your work would be done in your church and in your people. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 2 begins with Jesus at the uh, wedding in Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. And so Jesus leaves that region with his mother, with his brothers, <coughs> excuse me, with his disciples. And they went down to Capernaum, which is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is not a giant sea, it's a giant lake. And the northern part of that, it's called Lake, Tiber Lake Tiberias today, is the sea, is a place called Capernaum, or the house of Nahum, where uh, Nahum was born, actually, in the northern shore there. That's where most of Jesus' ministry would occur. But verse 12 says he stayed there for a few days, and then verse 13 says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In Exodus 23, uh, 14 through 19, uh, Moses lays out three annual feast that Jewish males were to attend. And this is very, it, was, it was not an option. All the Jewish males had to attend these three feasts every year. They were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is basically the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Harvest, which is called Pentecost, which is 50 days after um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Booths, which actually happened right along the time of Passover. So there's just the season in the life of Israel that they were to dedicate uh, to the worship of God. And so once a year, they would make a trek and uh, they would worship God in Jerusalem at the temple. And so often men and their families, they would take this journey together. If you remember back in Luke chapter 2, 41 through 52, Joseph and Mary 
they lost Jesus. Remember that? They lost the Messiah in Jerusalem, and, and they found him in the temple. Well, it was at the, at the feast, the Passover, that this happened. It says there in verse 41 of Luke 2 that it was something yearly their family did. They all gathered together, and they went. So for those of you who like to go to church once a year, this is your verse. <laughs> so it seems here in John uh, that with Joseph is now dead, right? Jesus, along with his mother and his brothers they, and, and the disciples, apparently, they stay at Capernaum where Peter actually lived. And now they traveled up together to Jerusalem to worship. In verse 13, uh, as verse 13 says, now Jerusalem is in, is in the south. It's, uh, if it's, it's more in the desert region of the south. It's an elevated city. It's about uh, 2,500 feet in elevation. And so you get uh, a lot of heat, but it's also pretty cold. And so people, when they went to Jerusalem, it was always up. You're going up to Jerusalem. And actually, Psalm 120 through 134, have you ever read the Psalm of Ascent? Have you seen that in your scriptures? You're reading, hey, why is this a Psalm of Ascent? Because those are the Psalms they would sing as they're ascending up the desert hills up to Jerusalem. And so they would sing these Psalms, and you would start with, a desperation plea and end actually as a, as a psalm as you're cresting the hill in the temple, you're, you're seeing the temple. And so um, people were anticipating the worship as they, their whole families would get crest over the hill and you'd see Jerusalem there in all its glory and, and the temple shining and it just would be the pinnacle of Jewish life. But the central focus of the nation of Israel was actually the temple in Jerusalem. And there's a reason why I'm sharing all this stuff with you. I'll tell you later. But it was originally built by Solomon. The temple was built by Solomon. That was the first temple. Then in 586 B.C., uh, because the uh, Israelites, they wouldn't uh, let the land lie and other things like that, basically the Lord handed them over to the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in and they wiped them out in 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, remember that guy? Uh, he laid siege to Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple, and if you remember, they were, in, they were all taken, well, there were, a lot of them were killed, but a, a remnant was taken back to Babylon, back to Iraq, and they were, all, they were there for 70 years. Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, all those, those people, Ezra, um, Esther, all that type of stuff was going on back there in good old Iraq, and so that would be the original Iraq. Uh, if you remember, this is when uh, well, basically, at the end of that 70 years, at the end of that 70 years, at the 6th century B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, King Cyrus, he took over Nebuchadnezzar and all those guys in one night, actually Nebuchadnezzar's son, but uh, he took over uh, that empire, and King Cyrus, who is prophesied by Isaiah, Basically, he allows the Israelites to go back into Egypt after 70 years and start to rebuild their temple. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah and all that stuff. And so the Jews eventually came back to Jerusalem with a kind of remodified temple. Well, a few hundred years later, now we're at the time of Christ, just before the time of Christ, uh, many, many people started coming into Jerusalem. Lots of people were gathering to Jerusalem to worship, so much so that it really couldn't handle the amount of people to come worship. And so Herod the Great 
uh, in cahoots with the Romans, basically said, hey, you can, you can rebuild the temple area. And so they created what is now known as the Temple Mount. Here the Great took a big square area, and because the temple was built on a hill, he had to kind of fill in all the gaps there. And so this area, as you look at Israel today, you see that big square where the Aqsala Mosque is. That's kind of the Temple Mount, although it, it's, there's a little history there. I'm not going to go into it. But Herod retrofitted this place. It's about the size of six football fields around the temple. So when you're talking about the temple in the Bible, you're talking about the temple area, and then there's the temple proper. And so because the temple was built on that mountain and and he filled it all in, the architecture was absolutely amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Archaeologists say the retaining walls that encompass the temple grounds, they were five meters thick. Those of you in the military know what I'm talking. The rest of us Americans, we don't know why the rest of the world won't get with it. But it's pretty thick. And, uh, and used stones that were anywhere between two and 100 tons. Some were 400 tons. It's huge, massive. I've been in Israel. I've gone down to the ruins below uh, on the western wall, and you see stones as big as this wall, like half of this wall. And you got to imagine, they're, they're pretty thick too. Massive architecture, massive stones, pretty impressive. And those were the stones down there where Jesus would walk the streets. He would see those. Those were the retaining walls. And the retaining walls for this giant temple mount were as high as 20 stories. 20 stories up of just retaining walls. It's just a massive feat. Just a few more things to paint a picture of the area that Jesus is coming into here with his family and his disciples as they're going to worship. Jewishvirtuallibrary.org basically says, um, undoubtedly the centerpiece of this majestic complex was the temple itself, a building shining with white marble and gold with bronze entrance doors. It was said that you could not look at the temple in daylight as it would blind you. But the attention to detail in its construction is exemplified by the placing of golden spikes on the roof line of the building to prevent birds from sitting on the temple and soiling it. We need those. <coughs> you guys notice our cross out there? It's like, ah. We need golden spikes. Can we put that in the budget? Um, on their ar- arrival, pilgrims could hear the sound of the Levites who played musical instruments at the entrance. The pilgrims would circle around the temple seven times and then watch the various rituals, sit under the columned porticos that surrounded the plaza and listen to or, to or talk with rabbis. The temple area was divided into various areas for study, for sacrifice, libation, etc., so uh, worship and, and, and further divided according to social hier- hierarchy. So they had the... Um, the it, from the outward end, it was the area of the Gentiles, and then there was the area of the women, and then there was the area of the men, and, and then there was the priests, and then there was the Holy of Holies, and that's just kind of how it worked in that society. And finally, in the center of the, of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the temple where the Ark of the Law was kept. Only the high priest was allowed to enter the sanctum, and then only once a year at the Day of Atonement. And so there's just this limited access to the very presence of God, only by the high priest, only once a year. And it was interesting, the high priest had to wear a belt around his waist so that in case of his unexpected death, he could be pulled out without anyone entering. That's how much they revered the holiness of God. That's why today, 
when you see Jews in the Western Wall and they're all standing against that wall is because on the other side of that wall in ancient times would have been where the Holy of Holies would have been. That's what they're doing. They're facing towards that. You're wondering why they're looking at a wall. No, it's about the very absolute presence of God and they want to get as close to it as they, as they could. And so it's the Passover in Jerusalem. There's about 80 to 100,000 people at the time who live in Jerusalem. Uh, historians say it swells up to as many as several hundred thousand. Josephus says at the time of the destruction, 70 AD, it could have been two million people were, that were slaughtered in that siege. And so the Passover that they were celebrating was a time when Israel looked back to when they were in bondage to Israel as slaves, uh, when they were in, in bondage to the Egyptians as slaves. And God delivered them. And the final through a series of plagues, and the final plague upon Egypt so that they would let the people of God go was that God sent a destroying angel in the night, and he would destroy every firstborn male among them who did not have the blood of a lamb across their doorposts. We've talked about this in recent times. I'm not going to go over it again. But those who did have the blood of the lamb on the door, God's wrath, God's judgment would pass over them. And so Israel was passed over, the Hebrews were passed over as a nation. And God says, remember this. It's important that you remember that day. And so they gathered together to sacrifice to God a Passover lamb. And from 3 to 6 p.m. that day, scores and scores and scores of lambs were slaughtered. And we know that in three Passovers from this one we're reading about the Lamb of God in that three to six hour period was slaughtered outside the city gates that whoever believes upon him, the wrath of God would pass over them because he died in their place. That's what this whole thing was about. And because the law required various sacrifices and all these different feasts and all this type of stuff, people had to either bring these animals, bring these lambs with them. If you lived in Jerusalem, no big deal. But if you lived in Portland or you lived in Walla Walla and you're trying to get somewhere far away, I don't know about you, but it's kind of a bummer to drag a goat that far or a lamb. The kids are difficult enough. Little livestock joke. Um, thank you. <laughs> but it'd be easier to pay money, right? It'd be easier just to, hey, bring your money. In, in to, and so it actually be, what began as a service to the people was, was something that was pretty, pretty cool. And so they had to bring money to the temple to buy these animals. So in verse 14, it says, In the temple he found, that is Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, real quickly, if you had more money, the law allowed for you to, to buy an ox. That would be the best sacrifice. The, the next would be, uh, you know, a sheep or a lamb, and, and that would be the next sacrifice. If you didn't have anything, you would have a pigeon. You'd have a pigeon. And if you read back when Mary and... Go ahead, cut now here. There we go. When Mary and Joseph were at the, uh, at the Passover... They offered pigeons. They were poor. Jesus came from a poor family. And so in the temple court, there's people selling these pre-approved, pre-inspected animals because you couldn't just bring your, your, you know, your sheep with three legs. You had to bring your best, right? 
how many of you like to give the Lord your sheep with three legs? That was not acceptable, right? First in the best. Firstborn male under a year, and it had to be spotless. And that was the idea because it was a picture of the Lord. And so it was a real service just for these priests to have these pre-approved lambs there they would buy. But the problem was that greed entered into the picture. Greed entered into the picture. If you remember Annas uh, from, from where, uh, when we were in Luke way back then, Annas was a, was, the, uh, was a Sadducee who had been high priest for a few years before this time, from 6 AD to 15 AD. We're about 30 AD here. And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the current high priest at this time, the historians say that they were extremely wealthy and they were extremely corrupt. Their whole family, it was a political thing. There were five of them that, there was a lot of people involved in this, but those two, they ran this racketeering, uh, this, this extortion basically of the people of God on the Temple Mount. And so first of all, they had money exchangers uh, that would exchange the Roman currency. Now, if you were a Jew, you would just kind of look at the Gentiles as just a horrible bunch of people that were occupiers, and you, you had to work with their money in their system, right? But when you came into the temple, you didn't want to bring that dirty Gentile money into the temple, and so they would exchange the money for something called a temple shekel. And it didn't have a picture of Caesar on there, and they were happy about that. But here's the great thing about the religious leaders of the day. They, just, they had an exorbitant, just a crazy exchange rate. How many of you have gone overseas and exchanged your money? It's fun. Yeah, and you have no idea what's going on, and you're just being taken for a ride. And it's, it's, that's what happened here. And they took advantage of the people. And secondly, they had those who were selling the animals do so at a really high marked up rate. I was reading where it was like 12.5% for pigeons. And if that's the least, like the poorest of the offerings, it was 12.5% markup, what do you think the bulls were and all that type of stuff? And so the religious leaders were using what was supposed to be, and here's where we're narrowing in, what was supposed to be a time focused on sacrifice, a time focused on giving, a time focused on worship as a means to make money off the people of God. The very center of the Jewish existence had become corrupt. And Jesus sees this, and he acts in verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one you worship. He walks into a church, he flips over the guy selling books, and he starts driving everybody out, and he has something to say about people making money off the people of God. Now, you have to understand this was a supernatural authority that, that Jesus was demonstrating. If, if, if I was to pick up, you know, the ropes off the ground from some cattle, and I were to make a whip, and I'd start beating people, how long do you think that would last? About five seconds, because a Jewish dude's going to come walk up to me and knock me out. That's what's going to happen. Jesus has this supernatural authority that he is just cleansing the temple, his father's temple. And verse 16 says, And he told those who sold the pigeons, he says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house 
a house of trade or a place of business. This is not a business. Very important. Christ was not going to tolerate a mockery of what true worship was in his father's house. And notice that Jesus says that it is his father's house. And this is John's point. He's the son of God. He's been, he's been declaring it all along. And now he is in the temple where his very father is to be worshipped. And he says, this is my father's house. This is not what it's supposed to be like. And he takes authority as the firstborn in the father's house to set things in order. My guess is that Jesus still has some thoughts about when pastors and elders and worship leaders and those who are commissioned to help guide and encourage the people of God and the worship of God, when they use that as a means to make money off the people of God. When sincere people who seriously want to desire to worship the Lord are taken advantage, advantage of by greedy men and women. God has something to say about that. And, and as I look at Christianity, and as I look at things that have begun in this spirit, the, the music industry, all this type of stuff that seems to be super awesome, there's a, it just seems like there's a marketing and a greed that comes in. I'm not talking about normal businesses. You can have a, be a Christian and have a business and make money. That is not what I'm talking about. Be blessed. Work with your convictions. I'm talking about in the name of God, in the name of worship, going and taking advantage of the people of God. And you see it all over the place. You see it on, on TV where people are saying, you know, hey, you just need to have enough faith and God will bless you, but here's your seed faith. You've got to give me a check. And these poor, innocent people who are genuinely hurting and trying to reach out to God are, are giving their last money towards this person and being taken advantage of, and they're getting really nothing in return. Nothing really happens. It's evil. It's wrong. It's not worship. And these men, Jesus and women, is very seriously focused on, especially back here. But in this day, I think he has something to say about that as well. Now, real quickly, you've got to distinguish. I am a pastor. I do get a check for doing what I'm doing. You, you guys all know that, right? The Bible says that you don't muzzle an ox. Right? I'm an ox, basically, while he's treading out the grain. So he make, cre creates a beautiful picture. I'm trying to work up to that image. Um, <laughs> don't muzzle an ox while he's treading out the grain. He said, in what, what the teaching is, those who labor in the word of God are to be given a double portion. They're to be taken care of by the people of God that they serve. That's the biblical teaching on that. How many times have you heard me teach on that over the years? Well, how many? Three, maybe? I don't know. When we come, we come around the issue of money? That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about paying, paying those who minister in the word so they can focus on ministering the word. That's not what, what's going on here. Pastors don't need to have a Bentley. But I do. No, I'm just kidding. I drove the van of shame this morning so that you would... <laughs> Pastors don't need to have a Learjet. Don't need it. 
But you don't understand that we need to reach more people for God. And if I had a Learjet, I could get there not having to sit with y'all. You know what I'm just saying? God works miracles on, in coach, believe it or not. Talk to my wife. She, like, she brings people to Jesus on coach. There's nothing wrong with, with, with you know, flying first class or getting upgrades on stuff. You know what I'm saying? It's taking advantage of people and their worship of God and making money off of them. God says, what are you doing? This is not a business. You're a bunch of thieves. This is Jesus. He's very serious about the worship of his father. He takes it very seriously. And, and as a pastor, uh, now just, just to let you know, I don't know what any of you give. That's a good thing. I don't know. There's, there's other people in charge of that. So I just get to love everybody equally, right? <clears throat> but we, as an elder board, we sit there and we, and we have, we know what's in the budget and we go, does this glorify God? Does this seek further in the gospel does it not all the way from what people get paid to what we spend money on and there's times when when one or more of us will just say no or wait or this is not the time or the season for that or we we adjust things because we're we're not owners we're stewards this is not my church it's the church of jesus christ and we're going to give an account and so we together are giving towards his kingdom amen and, and, so, and so that's the heart of what it's supposed to be. I'm not looking at you as an opportunity to make something off of you. There are people out there who do that. Now, I'm sure the evil's in my heart, so that's why I've got great men around me who will smack me around, right? But pastors and ministers, they don't need those things. They aren't a sign of God's blessing, and this is a false gospel. That if you have a bunch of of, of high-end material things that it is a sign of God's blessing. No, it's a sign of their greed. That's what's going on. They're greedy. It is not a sign of God's blessing necessarily. Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the what? For they will inherit the kingdom of God. The poor. It is harder for a rich man to enter what? Yeah. So he had warnings against people who had a lot of material wealth, and we, we know that we're always dealing with the heart, the poor, you know, it, you can be poor and prideful and, and rich in giving. It's, these standards don't, but there's generalities that are true. People with a lot of things tend to, tend to put their trust in the things. People without tend to look up, and God, he opens the invitation to all, and he says, hey, you know what? The people who are supposed to come, Jesus has this parable. He says, I want you all to come to the wedding banquet. And the ones who were invited didn't come. And the ones who really couldn't make it, the lame, the poor, the leopards, the blind, they were the ones who ended up coming. It's just the way the kingdom works. And so it isn't that you can't work hard and have a nice house and a decent ride and all that stuff. That's, that's not. It's when the pursuit of luxury is your God and at the expense of those seeking to worship God, especially in ministry. That's what he's coming against. And God never desires his worship in the Old Testament or in the church today as a means of making money. This is why we don't slam you about tithing. You, you ever just been to churches? They're just talking about tithing all the time. There's an agenda there. Listen, tithing is, is worship. 
It's, it's your response to God. It's, it's giving out of your heart. That's what it is. It's between you and the Lord. It shouldn't be manipulated. And as the pastors and the elders, we're not here to make money, but rather to be servants of the Lord and His kingdom, investing in His ministry and where He's going. And by the way, although the church isn't a business, there is organization to it. There has to be organization. How we do things is how we do things. We're Americans. But we want that to be subject to how the kingdom and the king does things. Amen? So it's not wrong to have a budget. It's not wrong to have administration or a building and all that type of stuff. But it's all got to be subject to the king. Amen? So, you know, how many of you have gone to classes and things? How many of you, you've just been charged whenever we do do it, just the cost of the book? Or the materials. We're not trying to make more money and roll it back into things and all that kind of stuff. We just assume where God leads, He'll take care of things. And so, and I think that's where all of our hearts are, aren't you know, as, as the people of God. We want to be givers, not takers, amen? That's the kingdom. Blessed it is to give. We want to be givers to others, not grabbers. And so, God deserves nothing less in his worship. And Jesus says, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. What's interesting is at the end of Jesus' ministry, how many of you read this and you, you, you think he just did this once? He did it twice. The first time, the first, this first one, then there's another, there's another time he went to the Passover, but then the next one where he would die, that's the one where he cleansed it again. And he, that time in Matthew 21, he says, It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. First time he said, Get this stuff out of here. Second time he says, like, It's not even get it out of here. You guys have made the house of God a place where, you, where robbers feel welcome, where evil is tolerated, where this kind of thing is going on. And that is what Jesus thinks of those who treat worship of God as a business and to make money. You're thieves. Stealing from God's people, perverting the worship of God. When the Lord comes again, interesting in Zechariah chapter 14, 21, when he sets up his earthly kingdom, it says, and there shall be no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of the host on that day. It's going to be holy. It's going to be set apart. In verse 17, Jesus' disciples sing all this. He says, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered Psalm 69, 9. And they're thinking, man, this is Jesus. He has a zeal for God's house, for his worship. This is the attitude that Jesus had for his Father's glory, for his undefiled, pure, holy, wholehearted worship. Jesus had a consuming zeal. Oh, that me, we, as, as men and women of God, would have a zeal for his worship. When we see things that are out of place and unbecoming and, and things that do not represent him right, not that we're legalistic and judgmental, but there should be a zeal for him, a love for him, someone that we respect and love so much when we see he's disrespected, that should do something in us, amen? It should cause us to act, First in ourselves, amen, because who knows what kind of dinner robbers is going on in there when we come to worship God, right? Take care of that, but also in love in our brothers and sisters when we see things that are unfitting, unright, 
those things. Love causes us to go to them and to encourage them and speak to them and, and, and say, this is the true worship of God. Look what it says in the word, not what I want you to, how I want you to worship, but what God prescribes as worship in spirit, in truth, the right heart. You know, so if we, when we see broken relationships, things that aren't mended, we go to one another. We just don't let that slide after a while because it's not true worship. That's hardcore, isn't it? There's a zeal for God. There's a zeal for his house, for his worship. And, you know, I struggle with being an apathetic Christian man. Anybody else? Meh. We've got enough eh men in the world. You know what I mean? We've got enough eh Christians in the world. We've got to have men who are serious about Jesus Christ. You can't hype that up. And that's why I'm excited about, you know, how to study your Bible. You know, it's just about how do, you, how do you get to know this awesome God? He's given you his holy word from eternity. And he's made it to where you can get to know him. And you, when you know his character, you know his heart, you know his, his, the things that make his heart beat. And those things become yours because you're hanging around him and you, you're learning about him then that affects your life. It affects the world around you. There's things that happen in you. And you don't become a man Christian. You're in it. Amen? And so I pray that we would have that same zeal like Jesus, that when we see those false worship and the motives and even good intent, even with good intentions, by the way, that we would be zealous for his true worship. Jesus, the Son of God, went for the jugular of this false worship, specifically in the hearts of the leaders who loved money, Jesus says in Luke 16, 14. He exposed them, and they didn't like it. Verse 18. How many of you like to be exposed? Uh, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Great, great question. In other words, who do you think you are? By what authority can you come in here and start doing that stuff in the house of God? You better be someone special. Show us a sign. Not these normal signs that you're doing, casting out demons and healing people. <laughs> Not the run-of-the-mill signs. We want to see the heavens part in, like, God talk. That's what they're talking about because we're going to find out that Jesus was doing those signs all that week. Again, we spoke about this last week. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they were so hard-hearted they were always challenging Jesus' authority. They wanted a sign from heaven. Again, Jesus says to them in verse 19, here's Jesus' answer. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? That's why I read all that stuff to you in the beginning. I mean, I already described the stones. I already described the architecture, the grandeur the sec of the second temple. The Jews are just stunned. This guy has got to be crazy. Show us a sign. Destroy this temple, and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. What in the world are you talking about? It's taken us 46 years. Incalculable man hours. Like, just, you're crazy. Three days, right. And here's the thing. That would have been easy to do compared to what he actually meant. Rebuilding the physical temple would have been actually easier to do compared with what he actually meant. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
You can rebuild a temple, perhaps not in three days, but it can be done. But no one comes back from the dead. No one. I don't know about you, but when you die, you are not raising yourself up at all. Amen? Again, like last week, the only sign Jesus was going to give was the sign of Jonah. Jesus was going to die at the hands of the religious leaders. And three days later, Jesus says, I will raise it up. I will raise myself up. That's what Jesus was saying. Notice that Jesus said that he would raise himself up. Got a problem because the, the Romans says in, in Romans 8, 11, says that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. I've got another problem because all over the New Testament says that God raised Jesus from the dead. I've got a problem here. Who's raising Jesus from the dead? Is it Jesus? Is it the Spirit? Or is it the Father? Yes. God did. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And here Jesus says that he would raise this temp, the temple of his body in three days. That was the sign that he was going to give. And that is the sign when, that he would give. That's the sign he gives today. People are looking for signs and wonders and miracles and all those things. Show us a sign and I'll believe. Show us a sign and I'll believe. The sign that he gave was that he died and he rose again. And that's what John is writing. That is all this thing is about. People saw Jesus. They walked with Jesus. He died. 500 people witnessed him rise from the dead. The world has been changed. He's coming back. He's alive. And if you don't believe that Jesus was a real person, that he really died because you read these accounts and that he rose again, you're not getting another sign from God. The resurrection was the sign. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. It was one of those moments when the disciples heard what he said, but they didn't understand. You ever done that? You heard something, then later the understanding comes to you. They're sitting there and he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to knock down this, you know, if you knock down this temple, I'm going to raise it in three days. And Jesus walks away. His disciples are following him going, <laughs> okay, like what did he just say? Can you imagine following Jesus as his disciple through all this? You know, at the center event of the Jewish year, in the middle of the Passover, here's this rabbi, and you're following him, and he's cleansing the temple. He's driving out cattle <laughs> as you're following him around. He's confronting the very powers of the whole nation. I'd be like, what did I just get myself into? Who is this guy? It must have been stunning to watch the Son of God claim to be the Son of God and watch him do what he did with the authority and the power he did. And they remembered after he rose again that he did raise the temple in three days. Verse 23, and we're closing up here. Now when, he's, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is a synopsis of what happened that week. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so apparently... As John chapter 21 says, that there are signs that aren't recorded. 
John says, there's so many things that went on, I can't even write it all down. There aren't enough books and, and libraries to write all this down. And here John records that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that were going on. Now here's the problem, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That word entrust and believe is the same thing. It's the same word. It's a little play on word, word in Greek. They put their faith in Jesus, but Jesus did not put his faith in them. Isn't that scary? And, and it says, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They had faith in him, but he did not have faith in them. The reason John tells us is that he knew what was in men. Do you know that Jesus knows what's going on in your heart right this second? He even knows what you don't know about yourself. You're not fooling anybody. I'm not fooling anybody. He knows what's in the heart of men. He knew that these people had a superficial faith. This same group of people in two years were screaming, crucify him. That's the kind of faith they had in Christ. It was a superficial faith, not a saving faith. They were wanting signs and wonders, but guess what? They would reject the actual sign, the actual wonder, the sign that God gave that his son would come and die for a world that hated him and rejected him in their place that his wrath might pass over them as they believe upon him. And that he rose again on the third day that just as he was raised from the dead, we would be raised from the dead. We would have new life. That's the gospel. It's simple. Jesus died in our place and he rose again and I have life. And what true faith is, church, isn't signs and wonders and if he heals me, then I'll follow him and all that stuff. It is a total recognition in your heart that you are totally poor in spirit and you've got nothing and that he is everything, and you know your worth before a holy God, and you fall down and say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross in my place. You died for me, a sinner. I believe you rose again, that I would have your life. I don't deserve any of it, but you are the Son of God. You're the Messiah, and I abandon my whole life to you. I am no longer mine, I am yours, I surrender. That is what saving faith is. It's a, an abandonment of self and a total giving of yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and his lordship. It isn't praying a prayer, although that prayer is the beginning. <laughs> it is a life that follows Jesus Christ. Believe is not a one-time believe. Believe is a continual belief. And by the way, he who began the good work in you is faithful to complete it. And I love that verse because I need that one. Amen? The sign that Jesus Christ died and rose again for us. And so, this sets up John chapter 3 where we run into Nicodemus at night. Nick at night. <laughs> Only get to say that when I get to John 3. I try to get in there every couple of times. So next week is Nick at night. <laughs> Lord God, I want to thank you again for your word. It's good just to read it and to understand the, the history surrounding it and 
and all that good stuff, but there's nothing like seeing you do what you've done. And Lord, may you come into the temple of our hearts and turn the tables and knock out the money changers and may the, the temple the, of the Holy Spirit, which is now in the heart of a believer, may it be pure, may it be right, may it be holy. Jesus, have your rightful reign in our hearts. Forgive us of our sin, Lord. We're so thankful that not only do you cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness, Lord, but you set your spirit within us, Lord, to empower us for the work and the, the life that you've called us to. There's hope. There's hope. Thank you for the hope in the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much, Father, for sending your son, for sending your spirit, for making us a part of your kingdom. And I pray that anyone who does not know you this morning would call out to you and that you would have mercy upon them. Father, bless us and keep us and cause your face to shine upon us as we go this week. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray and gather. Amen.